other rivers, you'll see areas that were river in the past, and then they shallowed out because they got shoaled up, and then the river changed course. And that happens all the time. Rivers are changing course and remaking themselves. Our main challenge is not to take so much water out of the rivers that they don't flow free and they don't flow adequately cool to support life, or they don't make it to their historical endpoints out by the sea. The rivers between us are deep And dark as the secrets we keep Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. This week, we'll be talking with actress Connie Britton and Rivers expert Paul Gallet. Paul has brought hundreds of government and corporate polluters to justice during his career in environmental conservation. He is currently the president of Riverkeeper, through which he protects the Hudson River and drinking water for 9 million New Yorkers. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is The Rivers Between Us, How We Protect America's Waterways. Hello, Connie and Paul. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having us. Hey, Matt. Connie, today we're talking about one of the songs you sang on the show Nashville, where you played country star Raina James. And as I understand it, in preparation for this role, you drew inspiration from a few different performers, including one of my faves, Bonnie Raitt. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a bit about what went into building Raina's character and what attributes of specifically of, of Bonnie Raitt played a part? You know, people always kind of try to guess, oh, Raina's based on fill in the blank. And the truth of the matter is I really based the character on sort of an amalgam of women who I really admire and performers who I really admire. And Bonnie Raitt is definitely at the beginning, middle and end of that list. She has just been such an inspiration to me mm. throughout my life. Her music is so profound and grounded. And um, to me, she strikes me as a, a woman who is very solid in who she is. And that's something that I've always admired and strived for and tried to explore more deeply in my own life and also in the characters that I play. So I definitely took from her inspiration when I was thinking about trying to create a powerful female performer. Yeah. And she, I, I just recently re revisited her first couple records and they're just so, such a unique combination of influences and textures and those along with the quality of her voice, which is so pure in tone you know? Yeah, I know. And to me, what I love about her vocal range is something that I can't, I will never have. And I actually have a funny slash sad story about when I was doing vocal training to play Raina on Nashville. And I was working with my amazing vocal coach, Valerie Morehouse. And I decided to attempt Bonnie's song, the, oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on what it was. 
Um, I can't make you love me if you don't. And I struggled with that song so much because I could just mm-hmm. not get my voice. The, the subtle complexities of what she's able to do with her voice in that song and in every song she sings are just so profound. I just could not get my voice to do, <laughs> to do it. And uh-huh. I literally burst into tears, I remember, in my, in my vocal session. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I'll, ne- I'll just never be able to get there. <laughs> yeah, but it probably deepens your appreciation for her music because it's so effortless sounding and to realize how technically difficult it is. Well, that's exactly it. You know, she, she comes across as just so completely organic and real and her music comes from such a primal place. And so it seems almost as if there would be a simplicity to it. And in fact, her vocal range and um, dimension is so complex. I just, (laughs) I was, I was at a loss, but it's great inspiration. Did you work with a vocal coach throughout the entire series? Oh, yes, I sure did. (laughs) And then how does it work when you're actually learning a new song for the TV show, like The Rivers Between Us? Well, the vocal training started very, very early on. As soon as I knew I was going to be able to play the character, I, I did so much vocal training. And the kind of training that my coach Valerie used was really actually very scientific and um, was for sure a lot about the breath, but also a lot about supporting where the voice was coming from and really using the whole body in, in terms of how I was accessing my voice. And it really opened up a lot for me that, that needed to be open in order for me to be able to sing in the way that I wanted to. And of course, you know, Matt, I mean, I admired you guys, you and Kamara and, and Earl Graham for so long. And I feel like you guys are similar performers in that way of just having access to this great instrument. Oh, thank you. Yeah, for sure. And, but, you know, it was really interesting to be able to work with a coach and have a very scientific procedural way of accessing, you know, the voice Mm -hmm. that I have, you know, Mm -hmm. so I really did a lot of that work before getting onto set or into a recording studio. Um, and then, you know, we would go into the studio and record and I I'm trying to remember for rivers between us who that we had incredible producers on on that show you know i mean obviously starting with t-bone burnett and and so i always had a lot of support and help in the in the studio in terms of being able to sing the song and (laughs) it would just kind of take as long as it would take and i usually had my coach there and if i got into a tough spot she would help me kind of work through it and get back into the this sort of science of where the voice was coming from Mm. there's this misconception out there that like you're just born a singer or not and such a great amount of training goes into it like i think sinatra who again has one of these just seemingly effortless deliveries i think early on in his career he was struggling and he worked with an opera coach and he really broke it down, like how you shape your mouth for certain vowel sounds. And shortly thereafter, or I guess actually he had found some success. He published a book with this teacher and you can find it online. It's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really incredible. You're right. In terms of artistry and where that comes from. And I do think that there is 
I mean, I have a nine-year-old son and, and it's, it's so of course, endlessly fascinating watching a child grow and seeing where their innate talents are and what they are. I recognize in my son, Yobi, that he loves music and, you know, he's, he was around music since he was one year old because that's when I started doing Nashville and, I would take him to the set every day and he was around all these musicians and in the studio and on the set. And he started doing school of rock when he was five, you know, and, and, and he loves it. And I wouldn't say that he's the most talented performer by any stretch of the Hmm. imagination, Mm -hmm. but he has a love for it. So I, I often think about, Oh, that's, that's the seed, you know, that's the beginning. And of course, I'll see how his life goes. But if you have that foundation, then there's something that can be trained. For sure. If there's the desire for the training. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's so mm-hmm. important. And I gather that you were working with, I mean, beyond T-Bone Burnett, you were working with a stable of industry heavyweights down there. And yeah. so you probably got an intimate glimpse of the country music machine. Mm-hmm. Buddy Miller. Buddy Miller was another incredible producer. He might've actually been the producer on that, on that song. Of course, all the songs on that show were written by Nashville songwriters. So we were working with the best of the best, but I remember with rivers between us, the thing that I love about working with those songwriters and working in an environment like Nashville, where it almost feels like music was born in a way there is this very connected to the earth or connected to spirit value in a lot of the music that's made there. And Mm. and I really felt that with this song. And, you know, again, I'm just in such awe of what songwriters do and the way that they were able to create a song of where the music actually felt as though it was connected to the river, which is of course connected to the emotionality of what, of what the storytelling of the song is. There's just so much more complexity to it than we could ever imagine when we just listen to a song and think, Oh, I like that song. That's a great song. That's a beautiful song. Mm. And you know, the artistry of, of that song, I think that the reference to, Rivers is not accidental, and particularly when you're talking about country, you know, a, a song that's a country song and supposed to be really representing our fundamental identity as as Americans. I think, and I think the lyrics of that song speak so much to the our unavoidable connectivity, especially during these very divisive times. Mm-hmm. You know, I agree. So, and then that, in that episode, you perform that song at the Opry, right? I think so. Yeah. I'm now I'm yeah. Remembering. Yeah. Well, I, I can attest to that. I did. Okay. Okay. (laughs) When you, if you would shoot there, were you actually shooting there or at the Ryman or or was it a set? Oh no, we would shoot at the Opry or we would shoot at the Ryman depending on what the story was. But we, yeah, we would always go on location and, and shoot there, which boy, what a gift that was. What a, what an incredible experience to go from not really being a musical performer to stepping on stage at the Ryman. That was pretty daunting. Yeah. So you mentioned Nashville having a spirit 
And I'd have to imagine that there's some serious juju in places like the Ryman and the Opry. Is, is that something you experienced when you were shooting in those halls? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's such majesty to it. And there's such great respect for the history and tradition of the music that comes from there. And I was really, really stunned and blown away by... First, how welcomed we were when we came in to do that show by all of the local musicians. And I mean, musicians of the highest, highest echelon. Mm. Everyone was so welcoming and embracing of what we were trying to do and inclusive of us into the Nashville environment. And I think it made all the difference because they wanted us to enter the fold of that very sacred musical world. And, and so we really, we felt it on every level in a really, in a really great way. Did you have some apprehension about that being a a Yankee? I mean, you're from Boston, right? (laughs) No, well, I I was born in Boston, but I grew up in Virginia. So I don't really consider myself a Yankee. I consider myself a Southern girl. I was less apprehensive about that because I know very well the, the graciousness of the South and uh, I have a deep love for that, but I was yeah, much sure. more apprehensive about feeling like an outsider or dare I say, even an imposter in the mm, music world. Yeah. You know, I, I was very, very concerned about that because I, I, I didn't feel worthy. I mean, I didn't feel, you know, I wanted to, to really just come in as someone who was there to learn and to try the best I could to emulate what is very real and earned for, for those performers. Mm. And, um, you know, in no way was I trying to come in and say, okay, uh, you know, I got this. Yeah, sure. I was, I was really there and, and with a lot of humility. Yeah. Okay, so you're I had that wrong. You're from Virginia. Are you that's mm-hmm. kind of I, I was born in Boston, but I grew up in Virginia. Yeah. So you're very familiar with the southern landscape. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I'm in New York and I grew up in the Northeast and there are some very distinct differences in in how you, how I experienced the landscape. But and I was wondering while you were down there in Nashville, did you get to spend any time in the country? Yeah. You know, it's interesting going back into Nashville. Actually, it felt probably of all the places I've lived, the the mountains and the trees and the landscape really reminded me of, of growing up in Virginia. And we did get, and you know, it feels even though we were in the city of Nashville, there was a, you feel just, you feel country adjacent a lot for, for a lot of the time. Yeah. Country adjacent. I mm-hmm. like it. I doubt there's a better phrase to introduce our talk about protecting America's water supply, right? <laughs> so with that, let's bring Paul into the fold. Yes, Paul. I, I really want to hear from Paul. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. I really wanted to hear from you. Oh, you're, well, you're very kind, but I can't wait to hear what you have to say about rivers and how much we rely on our rivers for, for, our, for our clean drinking water. So... Nationwide, 70% of Americans drink water from uh, rivers, lakes, or streams. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people in cities especially get their water from uh, surface waterways like rivers and streams. 
Mm. Uh, in rural areas, it tends to be more groundwater. In rural areas, uh, nine out of 10 people get their water from groundwater, but there's links between the groundwater and the surface waters. And so it's really important to make sure you keep your streams clean if you want to have safe drinking water. What's the difference between groundwater and surface water? So in rivers, lakes, streams, reservoirs, you take the water right out from the surface. You have it through gravity-fed pipes or you pump it through. You get it into water plants that remove bacteria and viruses. It's why we can drink our water safely in the era of COVID-19. Groundwater is pumped up uh, from either private wells or municipal wells. And there, too, you're going to be putting that water through uh, processes that are going to make sure that it doesn't have contaminants in it. And, of course, you got some wells that you have to measure contamination from nearby industrial uses. Some wells are nowhere near industrial uses, but they end up contaminated by nitrogen or phosphorus or other nutrients as well. So mm -hmm. it's a real mix of sources and a real mix of issues you got to protect the water from. I could use a an education in the from the geology department like is there the groundwater does that in, is that the same as uh taking water from the water table and is there a water table everywhere so you've got the shallow drinking water wells from the water table you've got the deeper drinking water wells from what's known as the aquifer system it all depends upon the geology if you've got some clay you tend to the water tends to pool on top of the clay and a lot of wells are screened as shallow as uh, 100, 150 feet. But the larger the supply, the farther down you have to go to get into the heart of the aquifer. So it really varies. The larger the system, probably the deeper and more extensive the wells uh, have got to go and the bigger the pumping system's got to be to get that out and then get it safely through the treatment plant. And what's the aquifer? Aquifer is just a fancy name for a confined layer of geology where you have water sitting on top of impermeable rock or impermeable clay. So the water will mm. pool in enough capacity that you can suck it out with one of those big straws they call a, a, a water well. Okay. And so are we at risk or any of our cities at risk for running out of water in the foreseeable future? Oh, we've got a lot of communities that are dealing with water shortages, unfortunately. You know, out west. Certainly California, yeah, where I am. Out, out west, you've got uh, the Colorado River system where so many different communities are sticking straws in, so many different agricultural uh, uses are being made of that river. You know, they put up the, the Glen Canyon Dam and the... Uh, and the Hoover Dam, creating Lake Mead for the Hoover Dam and Lake Powell for the Glen Canyon Dam. You know, each of those dams is down below 50% full, and uh, Lake Powell never full, filled up completely. And now the Colorado River does not flow all the way to the Sea of California, the down in Baja. It, it doesn't make it all the way to the sea. That's how much we're overusing some of our rivers. So, Connie, in L.A., I mean, do you see water conservation PSAs and efforts kind of always in your face out there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we haven't been in a drought in the last few months. And, you know, of course, we, we had a really terrible drought last year and terrible fires. And we actually were restricted from water use here at that mm -hmm. time. And it feels very immediate. It, I've definitely developed a new sense of 
how valuable water is and how much we need to take care of the systems that bring us clean drinking water, certainly in this country as well as around the world. Yeah. Well, so how did they enforce the restrictions? Um, well, our water uh, consumption was actually being watched. And if your water consumption and water bill went above a certain amount, you were charged fines and f- additional fees. Gotcha. You know, it's funny in New York, back in the 1990s, when I was working for the state environmental department, the city of New York was using about 1.8 billion gallons of water a day. And there were no meters on the different uh, apartments uh, and the different apartment buildings. They just charged by the the frontage on the block. Mm. And then the city required that meters go in and they started charging per gallon. And the consumption went from 1.8 billion gallons a day to 1.1 billion gallons a day. That was how much water we were wasting. It was shocking. So sometimes a little efficiency is a good thing. And like I say, if if you need water to have a thriving city or have a thriving agriculture or to have rivers that are cool enough to support a good range of fish and wildlife, then you really have to not waste what you got. And I think that's a very, very traditional notion that things are too precious to waste. We got away from that a little you know, I'm a, a child of the, the 70s and uh, conspicuous consumption and all that. I think yeah. that we're going to be better consumers if we take the conspicuous part out there. And certainly there's ways of reducing uh, demand on energy and energy and water intersect because you need the water to cool the energy plants. So I think we're getting better. Yeah. I think we're learning some things. You know, there's the wastewater treatment plant in New York City that actually Mm -hmm. takes the methane gas that gets created during the water treatment and uses it to uh, power homes. And that's pretty important. I'll tell you, I learned that firsthand because we live a block from those giant eggs in Greenpoint. You know the ones I'm talking about, Paul? Sure. uh, There's a waterway in New York called Newtown Creek. And just so people understand how industrialized this is, this just wasn't a home to one of the uh, refineries in the Industrial Revolution. This was a home to the first refinery in the Industrial Revolution. And so it got dirty as hell and it's getting cleaner. It's starting to recover. And there's an enormous wastewater treatment plant that makes sure that there isn't any more pollution that has to, than there has to be. And it captures that methane gas from that treatment and sells it off to the National Grid or whatever company it is that provides natural gas to homes. So uh, the, that's an amazing feat of engineering. Yeah. Very romantic offering in New York City. You can go tour the sewage treatment plant on Valentine's Day with your partner. <laughs> On Valentine's Day. uh, Yeah. So I went with my wife. Amazing. It is. And these things are really a marvel to stare at, these giant eggs. And uh, you go on top of them. I don't know. It's it's a good thing to do. I've got to go check that out. It's it's very cool. I think having that awareness, though, getting back to what you were saying, Paul, the, the, the awareness of the fact that all of these resources are at risk of 
scarcity and pollution. And, you know, being in California where we were really face to face with the fact that we didn't have enough water was, was just was a new concept for me, but ultimately it really has stayed with me. Every single time I turn on the sink, I think about where that water is coming from and, and the amount that I'm using. And I have that awareness even when I leave California now and I'm, and I'm grateful for that. And it kind of, it, it sort of makes me think, Oh, if we could create that awareness, certainly about water around the country, but also about all of the other environmental issues at hand. We could be so effective as citizens and humans. That is really nicely said. That is so true. (laughs) Yeah. And to that end, how does conservation advocacy work with what you do? So we have this uh, cleanup day Mm -hmm. where we get, uh, you know, well over 2,000 people out to really connect with their waterway and to feel some pride of ownership and pride of care. That's one of the best ways to foster advocacy. We also have 180 volunteer community science partners who go out and do water quality testing. They take a sample in their local waterway. They find out how much bacteria there is in it, find out how much dissolved oxygen Bacteria is bad for people who want to be in the waterway fishing and swimming. What does dissolved oxygen indicate? Dissolved oxygen is how much uh, oxygen you have in the waterway to support your fish and other wildlife that don't breathe the way we do. So you need a, a decent amount of dissolved oxygen, too little, and the fish can't live too much. And you get those toxic algal, algal blooms and uh, you get situations in which, you know, the waterway becomes unhealthy and chokes off, especially in the summertime. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's kind of a Goldilocks thing. Mm-hmm. Not, don't want too little, don't want too much. But when you do this community sampling and you feel like you are getting to understand the, the chemistry of your waterway, Things start to get really deep, no pun intended. Mm. And then you say to the government, look at all these people who are doing this work. They're doing shoreline cleanups. They're doing water quality testing. Don't you want to facilitate what they're doing with your own level of investment in our waterways? And I can tell you that just in the last five years, with this information in hand as to the areas where there's too much bacteria or too little dissolved oxygen, The state legislature in New York has allocated literally three and a half billion dollars for wastewater treatment and drinking water safety. And you can already see the reductions in pollution because we're investing in our waterways and we're investing in our waterways because people are getting active. They're getting their feet wet. They're doing the water quality tests and they're really showing that this is important to them. And, and they love it. And what could be better? I live about uh, half a mile from the Hudson, but the, not a day goes by that I'm not either in the Hudson or right on its banks. Mm. Well, that's some good news that you just gave us. Mm-hmm. I understand what it is to gather a bunch of people to pick up trash on the banks of a river, but when you have something that is dissolved in water, a chemical, an oil spill, pharmaceuticals, what have you, 
that seems totally overwhelming and unmanageable. How do you how do you deal with that? So you cut plastic pollution by cutting the number of plastic bags you use and that get thrown away. You cut pharmaceutical pollution by having locations where people can take back their old unused pharmaceuticals and you tell them not to flush them down the toilet. Mm. You deal with the oil pollution. The only effective way to deal with oil pollution is to prevent it because, you know, if you have a spill, if you're lucky, you get 20% of the oil back Mm. and it's done a tremendous amount of damage before you get it back. And when it comes to some of the historic pollution we've experienced from, say, PCBs, we've had PCBs contamination in the Hudson River oil for a 200-mile stretch. And if you're lucky, you're going to get a small proportion of that PCB out through dredging and then capping the areas that have continuing contamination. And, you know, our goal was to get that PCB out enough so that, you know, 20 years from now, the fish might be safe enough to eat. Mm. That's how big a problem it is to put the genie back in the bottle. And that's how you've got to focus on pollution prevention. What's a PCB, a polycarbon? Yeah, it's it's an it was an insulating chemical that was used back in the day when we were using things like uh, lead and gasoline and asbestos as an insulator. And it was found uh, in transformers. There's a big GE plant up in the north part of the Hudson. Uh, and they just discharged this contaminant into the waterway until in the 1970s. So we're dealing with all the things that, frankly, we probably should have known we shouldn't have done, but they were legal to do. Mm-hmm. So even if they you know, violated some law of science or some natural law about not doing terrible things where you eat or drink, mm. uh, we did it anyway. And now we're paying the price for that. And it's a billion dollar cleanup. And it's an imperfect cleanup. So a lot of that sounds like preventative stuff. What do you do to actually get in there? Is there hardware to actually sift through the water you get a big old barge and a big old dredge and you put the dredge on the barge and you dredge the um, contaminated sediment Mm -hmm. and then you make sure that it doesn't spread in the waterway when you're pulling it out Mm -hmm. and then you treat it so that it doesn't get into the air and then you dispose of it in hazardous waste landfill it's a bloody difficult and expensive process you know bacteria that you put into the water so that it removes uh, some of the larger contamination. And then you have to discharge it in a low enough concentration so it won't undo the balance of the waterway. Mm -hmm. If you have a big rainstorm in some of our cities, you have what's known as combined sewers, where the storm sewers go into the same water treatment plants as the the sanitary sewers from our homes and businesses. And Mm -hmm. then if you have too much rain, it overwhelms the ability of these treatment plants to handle it all. And so you have to bypass the treatment plants to avoid backups. Mm. I mean, they're known as combined sewer overflows. And they get a minimum of treatment if they get any treatment. We get 30 billion gallons of that a year in New York. But the good news is it's down from roughly twice that. Mm. And there's less contamination per gallon because of efforts made to improve the system and store some of the wastewater so that you can concentrate on getting the stormwater out of the system. But as rainfall gets more intense and as sea levels rise, the problem's going to get bigger. So we're going to have to get smarter. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so seems like we're getting into climate change territory. So we've got flooding, we've got increased temperatures. Earlier, you mentioned the goal to keep rivers cool to support biodiversity. Am I getting that right? You sure are. So could you talk about some of the consequences that we have to look forward to? Some of the consequences that we have to uh, avoid so we don't have to look forward to them. Uh, (laughs) That's my preference. Yeah. yeah, I think I think everybody would like to do something about it. I remember uh, the operator of the ski mountain that I used to go to when I was growing up in New York. Uh, he said, I, I don't know anything about this climate change thing, but the weather sure is different. Oh. And this guy drove us, uh, you know, a, a snow groomer at uh, Hunter Mountain. So I think he knew what he was talking about. Yeah. So whatever you call it, whatever your attitude about this is, uh, there's a certain amount of sea level rise that unfortunately there's we can do nothing about okay no matter how we change going forward mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be at least 20 inches over the next 30 years which is sort of frightening wow that's going to change a lot it's going to change shorelines it's going to mean that some of our infrastructure is going to have to be moved or hardened it's going to mean that some communities are more vulnerable to floods so Sadly, we got to do a lot of adaptation to the climate-related stuff we can't prevent. And then we got to do a lot of work to reduce the additional carbon that goes up into the atmosphere so that we don't get any more of that kind of climate-related change than we absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are things that are happening that make you want to cry uh, you know, whatever your attitude is about fossil fuels, so much of the methane leaks out of the operations that we have right now to um, get gas out of the ground mm. that we are basically overwhelming the savings uh, that we have because we're using less coal. So there's, again, whatever your attitude, whatever your place to start is, if you want to leave it all on the ground, God bless you. I think that there's good reasons to do that. But if some of it's going to come out of the ground, can we not waste it by throwing all the methane up into the atmosphere, which Mm -hmm. is a very even more potent problem for the climate than carbon dioxide? So what are those processes that, that do that? Well, you can control the leaks from compressors, from wells, from pipes, from plants. There's a tremendous amount of leakage that you can solve just by good maintenance Uh, And you can also make sure that there's no flaring that goes on at the wells. Mm. Um, You know, the flaring, uh, you burn the gas uh, that you don't use. Uh, You just have to find ways to tighten up the system. And at the same time, you have to find alternatives because the reality is we can make a system based on natural gas as efficient as we want, but there's still going to be too much carbon from the combustion of the natural gas Mm we got to find ways for people to stay gainfully employed and keep the lights on with less carbon being burned. And it's doable. Mm-hmm. It's doable. You know, California, where you are, Connie, you got over a million solar roofs. Mm-hmm. I have a solar roof here in cloudy New York, and I've had it for five years. And the amount of energy I've pulled from the grid is basically less than a month out of those five years. No way. Way. I uh, got a meter that says I've got 450 kilowatt hours of power that I've had to buy from Central Hudson wow. uh, Gas and Electric 
Uh, it's crazy the opportunities we have that we're not taking up. Mm-hmm. We can make so much progress just by putting existing technologies to work. Boy, that's inspiring. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard some figures that would suggest there's plenty of work in renewable energy, right? Because that's a big issue. What What are all the people who work in the fossil fuel industry going to do for work mm. if we transition to clean energy, right? 300,000 jobs in wind, uh, well over 100,000 jobs in solar. The biggest one is probably energy efficiency. Uh, because again, like we saved all that water in New York, we could save a ton of energy if our homes were more efficient. And there's lots of support. I mean, Connie, your home state, Virginia, is the latest of seven major states to say we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. Think of all the jobs that are going to be created in states like Virginia and Hawaii and California, Washington, New York, as they become carbon neutral. And think of all the manufacturing, a lot of manufacturing of heating, ventilation, and air conditioning in this country. It's one of the things that didn't go offshore as much as some of the other things. Opportunities at every end of the supply chain. And I think we need some jobs in this country. That's a great, that's a great approach, actually, to look at it in terms of job creation and job availability. It's certainly inspiring to people right now. <laughs> Absolutely. On the t- while we're given actionable items, uh, Paul, could you share with us some insight about what people can do regardless of where they are? I mean, I know there's a endless list of things that people can do, but everything from how they protect their own local river, how they advocate for cleaner energy, anything you got. Please tell us. So again, I could overwhelm you. There could be 16 different answers, but I'm just going to give two because then maybe they'll both stick. Mm-hmm. The first is enjoy your waterway, uh, whether whether you're going to boat or fish or just sit down by the uh, shorefront. Just go down there. The more you spend time on or near your waterway, the more likely it is that it's going to catch your eye when there's something you can do to actually help it. So enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's got it's got something for you. Enjoy it, and then once you love it, protect it. The second thing is that a lot of different waterways have advocacy groups that are really local, hyper-local. We've got this wonderful organization here in New York called the Hudson River Watershed Alliance. Mm-hmm. And as we're taping this, tomorrow is their big toast to the tributaries. And they get together all of their local groups, the the Wallkill River Watershed Alliance, the Quasay Creek, uh, Sparkill Creek, Sawmill River, Mohawk Watershed, Guardians of Flushing Bay and Creek, Rojan Watershed Community. They all get together. Sounds like biker clubs. I know. <laughs> Sounds so cool. <laughs> it is so bloody cool. And uh, <laughs> But, you know, join one of these groups and then you'll learn what it is that's most needed is it uh, you got to cut um, runoff from um, rural areas, from farmland? Is it that you have to, you know, restore wetlands so that there's some habitat, so we get a more diverse and thriving bi- biological community? So know your waterway with the help of one of these alliances or partnerships. And what about if you're in places in America where something like that doesn't exist? What 
steps can you take to start something? It's nice to have a nonprofit of some sort so that whatever donation can be charitably deductible. Mm -hmm. I mean, this country has a very strong tradition of charitable contributions, and charitable mm -hmm. contributions are now more deductible because of laws passed to help respond to COVID. So find a partner that will help you make sure that whatever money you get, you use wisely, and then maybe use that money to identify areas of your waterways that need particular help in terms of maybe there's a lot of erosion and you need to do some stream bank stabilization. Maybe you just want to get people together so that you find out who are the other river lovers in your community, the equivalent of the biker club. Mm -hmm. Build a biker club and, and, and you'd be shocked at how many of those organizations that I mentioned didn't used to exist five years ago. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can build it. You don't need a special permission from the principal. And are there online resources available about how to begin, how to get things tested? Like, I mean, say you have some some small tributary near your town and it's a mess. Where does one start? Yeah, there's there's three great ones. My favorite is the Waterkeeper Alliance because that's what Riverkeeper in the Hudson helped form. And now we're up to about 350 water keepers around the world. And um, we also have good partners at American Rivers and, um, and River Network. So there's a lot of groups that can support this kind of local initiative. Yeah. And, uh, you know, every year, 20 more groups start uh, water keepers throughout the U.S., South and Central America, Asia, Europe, Africa. So it's exciting to see people coming to this and it's kind of like sweat equity. A lot of people have the time and they have the drive. And then when they put it in motion, things get created that didn't used to exist just because people, you know, put their shoulder to the wheel. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we're about out of time and I would love to get some fun facts to satisfy my own curiosity more than anything else. Uh, so Paul, how would you describe the American river system as being unique to this planet? Well, we have uh, over 250,000 rivers in the U.S., over three and a half million miles of rivers. And some of them go through terrain that is uh, more like what you have where Connie grew up and some of it is more like uh, in the flatlands and the uh, in the western deserts. You've got the amazing Pacific Northwest rivers, the uh, Snake. You've got the Colorado going down through the heart of the Intermountain West. And so I think what's so wonderful about the U.S. is it's a country with diverse terrain where you'll be in one river system and you'll then move to another and you say, my God, they're both rivers, but they're so different from one another. So you got this amazing diversity of terrain, this amazing diversity of depth. You know, the deepest section of the Hudson uh, is, you know, well over 250 feet. Mm. And it's because the Hudson River was formed uh, in, the, in the same way as the fjords were formed. And then you go out into the West and you have some rivers that are so shallow that when it's dry, they don't exist as rivers anymore. 
So got to know a river, got to love a river. There's so many different things that you can find on the rivers of North America. And before we go, Paul, could you share what's one thing that we can all do to encourage our leaders in government to better protect our waterways? You know, I think the best thing somebody can do is, uh, you know, I went I went out to the hardware store uh, first time since lockdown and I got a new part for the toilet to keep it from running. And you call up your your politician and you say, I'm saving water at home. What are you doing so that we can save water collectively? Act at home and then act in your community and then act more broadly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's nothing so powerful to a politician as somebody who's taking action at a local level. I've seen it time and time again. And there's nothing really more fundamentally emblematic of America and being American than our rivers, you know. And and as I'm listening to you, Paul, I'm thinking to myself, it's about clean drinking water, but it's also about who we are. And if we can impart that to our politicians as well, um, that couldn't hurt either, <laughs> as, long, as long as we can understand it ourselves. Yeah, that's really that's really good, Connie. We really cannot be uh, separated from who we were as a people in previous generations. Mm-hmm. And connection with the land, connection with our rivers, yeah. is who we've always been as a people, and uh, really ought to be who we always are. Yeah. Well, wow, this has been tremendous. I can't thank you both enough. Thank you. Uh, The pleasure's been all mine, Connie and Matt. Thanks so much. Thank you both so much. Learn more about Paul's work at riverkeeper.org. If you are in New York, you can vote for the $3 billion Restore Mother Nature Bond Act on November 3rd. And keep up to date with what's going on with Connie Britton on both Instagram and Twitter, at Connie Britton. Sing for Science is co-produced with The Talk House. Special thanks to Italian artist Panoram for music and Gary Millis for tech support. Please be sure to check out our other episodes and subscribe to the show. Thanks for listening.